You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Paula Morantz-Cohen, who is a professor of English at Drexel University, also the author of a number of books, most recently this one called Talking Cure, an essay on the civilizing power of conversation, and also a book called Of Human Kindness, What Shakespeare Teaches Us About Empathy. You're also a novelist, and you wrote a novel called Jane Austen in Boca. And I have to say, I haven't read that. I'm definitely going to go and get that for my next vacation. And I have to say, as I was saying earlier, it's a little bit intimidating to have a conversation with somebody who's written a book about conversation. And I was wondering, we'll dig into this, I think, a little bit deeper, but I think there is a relationship between an appreciation for literature and the capacity to engage in good conversation, right? So conversation is, as you point out, a skill. It's something that, you know, you get better at. And I think reading literature is also a skill which you can get better at. And I think that there is a relationship in the sense that when you're reading good literature, you are, I don't want to say getting into a conversation with the author, but it does seem to some extent that you are, right, entering into some kind of conversation. So we'll first have to figure out what it is about conversation that's so important. But is there a relationship between being a good conversationalist and being a skilled consumer of literature? Yes. Absolutely. I think so. And that's one of the sad things about students not reading as much anymore. A lot of ways in which literature is important, I think, in conversation. I mean, first of all, it builds the vocabulary. It engrosses one. And that's one learns how to be invested in something. You're invested in a book. You're invested in a conversation. But most importantly, and I think this is so important on the college campus, it gives people something to talk about. It gives them matter with which to converse. And one of the problems, I think, in our society is that we're always talking about ourselves or what we feel or what's in the news, and we don't talk about some intermediary thing that is deep and profound and has a narrative to it. And when you have a book in common, and that's where I think the canon, the literary canon was so important. When you have books in common that everyone has read or read some, you have something that's really very rich to talk about and you can keep on talking about it without using it up. Yeah, I think I, I saw a quote recently from Donald Hall. I think it was, I don't know if it was in his memoir about his life with Jane Kenyon. And yeah, he talked about these third things, right? He said, what creates a deep relationship is the ability to talk about shared experiences and so forth. But these don't presumably always have to be deep things, right? Profound works of art. You surprisingly in the book said that you enjoyed listening to the conversation of the folks on NBA on TNT. These guys are also having conversations. And part of it, of course, is that it's unscripted. Like they are reacting in the moment to what they've just observed, you know, whether it's Charles Barkley and Shaq, right? They're going back and forth. And I think at the very beginning of the book, you said that people who are good speechifiers 
don't always make good conversationalists. And so what's the difference there? Well, I guess I, I mentioned inside the NFL, I'm not really an NBA person, but the NFL, the same difference there. But I guess the idea is there that they are all in a way experts on what they're talking about. And yet they greatly respect each other and are interested in what the other is saying, or at least they give that appearance. And I find that extremely moving in a way, as well as interesting to watch or listen to. And I like to do it. And not to say that you have to be an expert, but to have an investment in something, emotional investment, intellectual investment. So I think that's what I like. Speechifying, of course, is where you're just presenting your own views without the idea of a give and take. And that can be rewarding too, but it's totally different. But is there something also about the spontaneity? I think sometimes when we're evaluating individuals, right, one of the reasons why we like sort of stand-up comedy is that is there something about it that's, that's immediate? And in fact, if we found out, sometimes we find out that all of this stuff is rehearsed right, and well-practiced. And, and sometimes we lose a little bit of the appreciation once we discover how much preparation goes into it. That's a really interesting analogy because my son is trying to do stand-up now. And I find him quite funny. But then after I've heard his bits three or four or five times, not as funny. And I wonder how he can continue to do it. And he himself said, you have to get new information, new material. But yes, I think good conversation is a form of improvisation. And when you get someone really good at it, doing it with you, you're playing off of each other. I think I use the analogy to jazz and a jazz group where you're really inspired by the other's words, even if you disagree with them, it creates momentum and it creates a sense of excitement. And you lose yourself in the flow of that back and forth as you would, I imagine, a jazz player does in a performance with other people. Well, and, and I think part of what you're describing is how we forge bonds with other people through conversation, and it helps us to cultivate empathy for the other. I think you set up sort of two extreme versions of conversation that don't really work. One was argumentation, right, where people are sort of yelling at each other or <laughs> talking past one another. And then the other is where they're just in complete agreement and they're just sort of repeating each other's and echoing what they say. Yeah, there's no friction. There's no tension there. And it has to be, uh, obviously, you don't agree entirely with me. You're not me. And I think finding points of divergence are a lot of fun as long as goodwill is involved. As soon as there's animus involved, it's not fun anymore. And as soon as it becomes a matter of winning or losing, which is really a detrimental to conversation, and I know people that can only converse or only discuss things they disagree with if they can win. And I didn't until recently realize that I just don't want to do that anymore. I want to take issue with you on one thing. You said something to the effect that the purpose of conversation and conversation is unending and it just keeps spooling out and there's no like definitive ending. But I always find the conversations most satisfying when there are these kind of provisional endings or agreement points. Like I tend to think of conversation more like two sides of a zipper coming together, starting off with some disagreement. And sometimes I'll just throw out something with some of my best friends. I'll be like, you know, throw out some kind of controversial point and say, you know, debate. Right. And so then we'll go back and forth. 
And we'll try to figure out how, from our diverging viewpoints, we can forge some kind of agreement, even if the agreement is one where, okay, reasonable people can disagree based on preferences or whatever. But then once we get to that point of agreement, then it's like, okay, now let's create a new point of disagreement. No, I totally agree. In fact, you're helping me. If I had this conversation with you, I would have added this to the book. There is closure within conversation, I think. And also sometimes that closure is the end of that particular conversation. But I think knowing when to end a discussion about something is part of the art. You just have to know when it's, when you've gotten to a point, at least for the moment, because it may not be the resting point for good, where you've sort of exhausted it for the moment and you can go on to something else or you can leave. And so you're absolutely right about that. And I hadn't thought about it, but it's almost like a musical composition. Again, getting back to the jazz idea. Yeah. So with like within a jazz composition, right, there are these moments of closure and then you launch a new theme and start all over again. But, you know, you also point out how conversation is something that you have to do, right? In order to get good at it, it's participatory and kind of like swimming, right? You know, you can't read a book about it. It's like writing, too. Yeah, but you can observe it, right? So you can model your conversation on kind of good conversations. When you're observing other people have a conversation, which people are going to do for us, you're going to be watching this conversation. And it's this is unscripted, unlike the, I guess you, you talk about Boswell recording Johnson's conversations. I don't know whether those were verbatim or whether those were ex post cleaned up versions. And you talk about my dinner with Andre, which I remember seeing that actually I, I saw it in Philadelphia at the, I guess it was the old TLA theater down there on South street. Those are pre-scripted. When you're watching a conversation that's not pre-scripted, sometimes if you're not a part of it, it's not quite as interesting as it is when you're participating. No. And that's one of my points is that in a sense, and I guess I'm sort of destroying my book in the process of writing it, that If you're watching a conversation, it's not, you can't get the feeling of it. It becomes a performance, even if it's not for you. And the only way to know what conversation is, is to be inside of it and to lose yourself in it. And so there are lots of ways to represent conversation, but then that becomes very performative, which is against the grain of what a good conversation feels like. Now, the title of the book is The Talking Cure, right, which you borrowed from Freud. And of course, you know, what happens in the analyst's couch, that's not really conversation, right? It's curative, it's therapeutic, it could be healing. What are the similarities and what are the differences between that sort of talking cure and the kind of, quote, talking cure that you have in conversation? Well, as you said, it's not because it's one-sided with a therapist and you're paying him or her to reveal yourself. But I think the idea that talk can have a uplifting curative effect, although in therapy, it's not always uplifting, is one thing. And the other is, and I really liked this idea, although I think people have taken issue with it, that the idea of transference in psychoanalysis is that in the course of psychoanalysis, you fall in love with your therapist and presumably in countertransference, they fall in love with you. And of course, that fits with Freud's issues uh, about the libido and the sex drive and all of that. But here, it's more a feeling of great affection for the other person or for the group 
that is engaged with you, I think that there is that feeling of love, of outpouring of affection, that this person is on your wavelength and engaging with you on such a profound level. And if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, well, then you don't. But I have you, Greg? Well, I guess I'm, you know, you say an Irish writer is a failed conversationalist. And so I love that quote because I'm Irish and I don't write. So you know what I'm doing with most of my free time, which is having dinner parties and conversations. But you talk about how conversation can feed this affection that you have for another person, right? But you also have to go in with some minimal level of affection or at least openness, right? You talk about how you've had wonderful conversations with people behind the hotel counter or with Uber drivers. So you don't really have to have an intimate relationship with someone in order to have a good conversation, do you? No. And I think you're probably asking because you know yourself you don't. And what you need is a receptiveness in the other person and you yourself have to be in a certain mood, which I generally am in because I'm Again, I don't know that I'm typical of people. I love to talk to other people. I find them infinitely interesting. And my husband, for example, is not that way. We often talk about the fact that he is more interested in things, art, for example, than necessarily in people. And I'm less interested in things and more interested in people. But So when I get into a cab or I meet a student on the street, I want to converse with them, but they have to, I have to feel that response back. And when I do, it can even be very short. It is very life-affirming and it does create something of that feeling, that welling of affection. But doesn't it, I think it requires that you cultivate a deep curiosity about other people. I remember when I was a kid growing up, my father, and we grew up in Philadelphia and he would he was a, I guess we used to make fun of him for being a schmoozer, right? Because he would go down to the gentleman's club and talk to people and he'd talk to anybody. He'd talk to the mechanic. I wasn't like that at all. I would just have my book and not talk to people. Over time, I've grown to appreciate that. And it's because I've cultivated a curiosity about other people who are very different from myself. And Well, Greg, can I interrupt you there? Because it's so interesting that I was the same. I always had a book. In my family, we always had a book to take. You took it with you just in case you had to wait or you had. So I always had a book. And I realized I would differ with your notion of that it's about practice, although it's about practice to some extent. It's also about being less fearful. Like I feel when I was in college, I was fearful of people for some reason, even though I had a very warm family life and I knew all the people in my high school and all that. When I went to college, I did not speak to very many people. I have very few close friends from college. And I think as I became more confident, I was able to bridge that gap between people. Just do it. I tell my students this, that Nothing should be too intimidating. And what's the worst that can happen? The person won't respond. I wish I had done it as a younger person because there's so many missed opportunities for conversation there. Right. And I think in part that growth that I've experienced came from reading a lot of literature, right? And seeing how other people live. And now when I look for literature, I'm trying to find literature that takes place in geographies and historical periods that are very different from my own. 
maybe with characters who have very different lives than my own, because I'm really trying to figure out what was it like to be, say, a slave in 17th century South America, right? If I can find a book that imagines that world, it, it, for me, it's, it's very gratifying. But I guess it was you or your father who said, you got to figure out what their M&Ms are. Everybody's got something that they're passionate about. I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using that phrase. My father died last year. He would love the fact that the phrase is now being disseminated far and wide. Can I put the background on the phrase? Yeah. So my father, who was also a great conversationalist, but a scientist, so not as emotional as I am, but there was some friend of the family of my parents that they would see at parties and the wife was very outgoing and the husband said very little. And my father was determined to get him to open up and found, started talking to him about his job. And he worked for the Mars company that makes M&Ms. And suddenly this man became animated talking about candy. <laughs> and so from then on, we always would say, what's his M&Ms? What's the thing that will open him to conversation? And I do love that. And everyone I know, I think, or at least within my immediate family knows the phrase. And so we use it for people. But, you know, you'll see something like that in a book by Dale Carnegie. You mentioned Dale Carnegie. In business school, we teach people how to be very instrumental in their networking and in their conversations. And Dale Carnegie might say, if you want to forge a relationship with somebody, you got to figure out what their M&Ms are. I'm sure he would borrow this if he could. But what's overlooked in that, I think, is how that benefits you, right? How that kind of improves your character, right? And makes you a more virtuous person. You don't use this term in the book. And I was thinking also, we have all these debates about free speech on campus. Uh, and there was a recent event at Stanford Law School that highlighted this. And what I think it misses is that the setting aside free speech, a reason why you want to engage in a conversation is not because that person has the right to be in a conversation with you, but because it is fundamentally going to help you learn, help you figure things out and help you to understand other perspectives. And I think that part we don't really emphasize enough. So you think that in the espousal of free speech, we don't emphasize that enough? We talk too much about the right of people to speak? Yeah, I don't think that we emphasize enough that for just setting aside that and just focusing on, you know, you are better off when you learn how to check your emotions and listen to what other people are saying, right? Because even if you end up disagreeing with them just as strongly as you did at the beginning, you know, you have a better understanding of where they're coming from and perhaps a better understanding and a more nuanced view of your own beliefs. And I feel that's so important on the college campus now. What is a university but a place where you're supposed to broaden and deepen your understanding of life and other people and experiences of other people. And if you can't hear things that are uncomfortable or you disagree with, you are going to not be educated. On the other hand, I guess the response would be, and I'll throw this back to you, Greg, is how far should that other be pushed? In other words, there's hate speech and how far, where are we close to hate speech? Is hate speech also something that helps us grow and understand ourselves better? I don't know the answer to this. I don't know where the line should be drawn because inside the university, I hear multiple points of view on this. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that part of a conversation is that both parties have to kind of agree to the rules, right? It can't just be one person right, going into it with a particular mindset. I know somebody who had said to his daughter that you should read this because it gives you another side to your political position. And she said, I don't want to read that. I don't want to know another side, which is a little chilling to me, even if not to be curious about what the other position is. Yeah. And I think your book on Shakespeare, which I really liked, it does focus on this question of the other. And you emphasize that aspect of Shakespeare's writing where he encourages the reader, not obviously, sort of subliminally to deepen their understanding of people that are very different from themselves, helping them to put themselves in the position of people different from themselves. But it also raises the question, I talk a lot about The Merchant of Venice that I think is a very pivotal play in Shakespeare's canon. And I think it's a brilliant, profound play about the other, about what it means to be marginalized and what happens to the individual when they become that way. But to teach that play well, uh, you need a teacher who understands that and can really help the students come to an understanding of what Shakespeare is doing with that character. Otherwise, it can become a situation where everybody is just decrying the anti-Semitism in the play. And that's really not productive. Or as early in my career, who just sees Shylock as a flat villain and doesn't think about what made him into a villain. So again, you have to have a situation where people can explore what's behind the words. And you don't always have that. And you don't always have people that really want to dig into things. They like the easiness of a platitude or a cliche or an easy condemnation of something. Well, I mean, that requires that the reader go into the text with a willingness to be surprised, a willingness to come away with a different point of view than they went into it with. And sometimes that requires having a good teacher, but you know, oftentimes you don't have a teacher around. I would hope that your exposure to literature is not limited to the university seminar room and that you cultivate in that seminar room some skills that'll enable you to engage in, with literature on your own, right? I think that's the role of the humanities in general and why it's so criminal that the humanities education is in such decline because students are not getting those tools, those habits of reading and thinking that will carry them through the rest of their lives. And I was just disappointed to learn that we have something out here called the Cal Shakes California Shakespeare Theater, which is suspended its season this year. And well, they say that there's not enough interest in going to these performances, but I think part of it might be due to the fact that the interpretation of the performances, I think, became less subtle over time. And you mentioned that the importance of reading versus watching perform. Now, me personally, I prefer to watch Shakespeare performed. I prefer to watch Ibsen and Chekhov performed rather than read it. But I also know that it has to be a good performance and you have to go to them multiple times and seek out. And I remember one time I saw Othello in San Francisco and two days later saw it in DC. And it was just a completely different interpretation. And it enabled me to triangulate a third interpretation. I guess I'm a little lazier than you. And so 
when I want to get the multiple interpretations, I like the idea of reading it with a group. Again, not alone, but with either a class or a group of peers and getting multiple readings. Because, of course, as you say, when you see a performance, you see the director's interpretation imposed, hopefully, and the actor's taking his cue. I had a colleague, and I talk about him in the book. He is no longer alive. He's my, he's the one who, from Kansas who was a Marine, but he went through a period where he decided to go to as many Shakespeare performances as possible within, I don't know, six months period. And he went to high school plays and he went all over the region. And he said, it, even the ones that were not good just helped broaden his appreciation for Shakespeare. So I see your point on performance. Now, that colleague of yours, you mentioned that he's very different from you in a lot of ways, but you're able to forge a strong friendship. And you hear about this all the time, right? You hear about what Reagan and Gorbachev forging a friendship. You hear about Scalia and Ginsburg forging a friendship. Do you think that those types of friendships are becoming less common because people are, I guess they have more flexibility in terms of who they choose to hang out with. In some sense, these relationships were forged because people were put in situations where they more or less had to spend time together, right? Like, you know, you're on this faculty together. So, you know, you have meetings and gradually you get to know one another. When you can pick and choose who you do your Zoom calls with, you're presumably not going to choose to meet with the person that you have initial. I don't know if that's true, Greg, because I think Dave and I chose each other very deliberately, as different as our views were. And even though I'm in a university environment with a lot of people that ostensibly share my politics, most of them are not people I want to be friends with. I can admire them and like them, but they are not people. I don't want to be friends just because somebody has the same views as I do. What Dave had was that curiosity and that willingness to. I mean, he read what I suggested he read and I and vice versa. And I think the reading element was very central to this. And we could appreciate each other through the literature, but also through our personalities and our sense of humor and our discomfort with life in general and our sense of the human condition. And not everybody can tap into that and say those things. The tragedy of human life, right? We could say, we once had this great conversation about how we couldn't understand how all these people out there can cope with life when we can barely cope with it at all. I mean, they make out their taxes and they brush their teeth and they raise their children. I mean, we don't understand how they can do it. We are doing it, but it's really hard. But all these, of course, there are a lot of people that can't do it, and we had so much laughter. I will say also, there was some laughter at the expense of other people. We sometimes would say things like, who's stupider, this one or that one? Now, that doesn't sound very nice, but it was a lot of fun. And there are very people you can do that with. And I don't know if I should be giving myself away this way. But I do think there is a sense of we versus they in a good conversation. Sometimes when it's a, when it, or a friendship, a really deep friendship. There's a sense that you are special with that person or those people, and everybody else is outside. 
And you can critique this if you want, Greg. Maybe I, as I'm talking to you, I'm learning things about myself I hadn't thought of. But I don't know if that's very admirable, but it is true. And Freud, I should say here, he did say you, people need a scapegoat or to be unified or to, to really cohere. So maybe that's behind this too. But it's not necessarily the best part of that kind of warmth in conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think intimacy does require that you prioritize the people you're intimate with, right, in some way, which necessarily means that you're demoting everybody else. Yes, and you're also congratulating each other on choosing each other. And as a result, (laughs) what good taste you have. And that is part of the dynamic, which I wish I dug deeper into that. I think it's both amusing and true and not necessarily particularly admirable, but again, true. But that means you're othering the outsiders in order to overcome the other that you're having the conversation with. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe that dynamic is so inherent in our nature. I think many young people now are trying desperately to get out of that dynamic of othering because they find it not virtuous, to use your word. On the other hand, it may be that, as you put it, for the sake of intimacy, there has to be a little bit of that we versus they. Well, I I don't think that's true at all. I think that people are just redefining the othering, right? So in other words, there are certain ways of othering that are no longer legitimate, but there are others that (laughs) are now perfectly fine, right? Certainly here in Berkeley, Anybody who lives between Sacramento and Pittsburgh is the other, right? So, And it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to get back to this idea of maybe serendipitous encounters. You talk about how the faculty club right, is kind of a shadow of itself. I remember when I was growing up as a kid, I always wanted to be a professor. I thought this just sounded like the best life. And then I'd read about David Lodge novels and I thought, oh, wow, this is great. We're going to have all these dinner parties and all this wonderful intellectual conversation. And then you get to the university and you realize that everybody's just so deep into their research that they don't have time even for lunch, much less for a beer after work. And so the bar at the Berkeley Faculty Club is a ghost town, pretty much. At least you have a bar and a faculty club. (laughs) It's a kind of a shadow of itself. But is that just an inevitable consequence of technology and the economic system that we live in? Well, it is a change in the university. I mean, the university used to be, and I don't necessarily think that the change is bad, but it used to be an ivory tower, that idea. And the idea of collegial conversation, very long lunches, two-hour lunches, and desultory interactions and Yeah, you wrote your monograph over three or four years or whatever, and you taught your classes, but there wasn't this, first of all, then you got tenure and you could sort of relax a little bit. But now, number one, there's less tenure. There are no tenure track jobs in the humanities, really, very few. And this publisher parish idea, which is so complicated. I mean, you have to publish, you have to publish in the right journals or the right presses and so forth. And then the teaching loads are higher, I think, are larger than they were. Or if not, I don't think there's more teaching. There's more assessment of teaching and that all that big data stuff by which people are made to toe the line. 
And as a result, I think the collegial atmosphere that we knew has dissipated. So it's not only the demands of the job, but I think it's also just the demands of life as well, where we are overburdening ourselves with things. And then to some extent, it's almost in part because we fail to appreciate the necessity of, say, conversation for sustenance reasons. And we could talk also about food, right? (laughs) Because a big part of your book is a chapter on the importance of eating while conversing. And I'm a huge dinner party person, but organizations can sometimes underinvest in food, but they can also underinvest in facilitating these conversations. I like how you use the term verbal sustenance, right? Really, it's a necessity of life. You didn't use this term. I've seen this term by some anthropologists and sociologists, verbal grooming, right? Because primates need to groom. And so they spend all their free time grooming. And we don't pick nits out of each other's hair, but we do have conversations. And so to what extent is conversation a necessity rather than a luxury? Well, it's a necessity to me. Now, I don't think it's a necessity to everyone. And I think part of the point in the book is that maybe it's becoming less of a necessity to people because you said you make it as though they're so busy they don't have a chance to converse. But I wonder if the absence of the exercise of conversing has made it so that they fill in with other things. And partially it's our technological society and social media and publisher parish within the university and teaching loads and so forth. But as you probably know, you can always make time for things you really want to do. So I think that people don't necessarily want to do it the way they might have in the past. I have to say, and there must be people like me, I know there are, who crave it. I get depressed if I don't have enough conversation. And Yet I don't think that's true of everyone and maybe fewer and fewer people. To me, it's such a pleasure to talk to somebody who can listen and who can talk back. It gets me out of myself. I don't like to be inside my own head all the time. I like to hear what the other person's head is about. And I like to share my anxieties and fears with them. But maybe also... People go to therapy more, and that's serving them. As I'm talking, I'm thinking this. Maybe that's serving them more instead of that. Yeah, I was talking to a colleague just yesterday about how she teaches this class on wisdom and happiness, and she said that every one of her students is in therapy. And certainly when I was in college, very few people were in therapy. But isn't this kind of, I mean, to me, this, at least in part, is you hear about people who, in Japan, who pay for girlfriends and pay for people to go to their funerals and stuff. I mean, are we professionalizing this conversation? And just like we used to have our children and spouses and extended family help us with housework. And now we hire housekeepers. Are we just bringing the market in here and just hiring people to have conversations with us? We're outsourcing conversation to our therapists. Yeah, that's a sad thing to think of because it also reflects the isolation of the individual. I mean, we're alone in, in uh, ultimately anyway. And this seems to me to reinforce it further and make it less and less necessary to reach out to other people if we have that weekly appointment with the therapist whom we pay to listen to us. 
and and not agree with us, but make us the center of focus. So that reinforces the fact that we don't really need anybody else to help us. Now, I was just talking yeah, last night, I was talking about your book. I was, had a bunch of people over for dinner and you said that the best dinner conversation is one at a restaurant where everything's sort of taken care of. And so we got into a bit of a debate because I always have people over and we always cook together. And so I always invite guests over and we are hanging out in the kitchen and we're cooking before we sit down to eat. And it seemed like when you are engaged in sort of a shared task, not a super huge demanding task, but when you're engaged in shared tasks, this too can, I think, facilitate conversation and sometimes provide the basis for conversation. Is there a difference between the kind of conversations that arise when you are engaging in some shared activity versus this place that's circumscribed without any demands whatsoever on your time? There probably is a difference. I mean, I assume that all your friends then have a role to play in the kitchen and can do that and feel comfortable with that and enjoy it. But sometimes you might have somebody who doesn't know how to chop a carrot or something and just doesn't want to do something, then they would be a little bit left out. Although if I were there, I probably would sit in a chair with a glass of wine and be part of it that way. Yeah, yeah. That's, that could be a role. That's a perfectly legitimate role. All right. Will you invite me? I'll fly to the West Coast and join your next dinner party. But I think I love this idea of sitting in a really comfortable, ideally a beautiful place with food being served and wine or liquor if you don't like wine or something and engaging that way. And again, I think I talk about the fact that the ideal number for a dinner party is six. You go over six and it's unwieldy. If you go less than six, four is fine, but you get more variety with six because if it's couples, for example, if you have just two couples and you sort of know each other, but if you add another two, whether they're couples or not, you really get a little more noise in the mix, so to speak. And But if you go to a bigger number, I really hate it at dinner parties when it devolves into little groups of two talking. And I don't know whether you have that problem. And I like it when everybody is engaged with the same subject around the table. I know people who don't like that so much. They feel, especially with me, that I'm orchestrating it too much or I'm leading a seminar. I don't mean that. And I don't, but that's not how it should go. It should go that everyone feels engaged. But sometimes you have to do that. You have to sort of kick it off and say, what do you all think about this? Or say something outrageous from which other people can then respond. And talking about seminars, it seems like the art of seminar teaching is almost like a dying art. And you talk about how sometimes when you're leading a seminar, you can sort of step back and let the conversation take on a a momentum of its own. Why is the seminar disappearing? Part of it is obviously cost. I mean, class sizes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and faculty student ratios are changing. But is there also something about the difficulty of making it work that requires a lot of practice that is really too difficult for most faculty members? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's mostly the idea that the humanities is declining. And that's where the great seminar teachers tended to be. 
as a dean, I'm a dean of the Honors College at Drexel. I'm trying, we have a program here. We got a grant from the Teagle Foundation for a program in civic foundations where first-year students are taking three courses because we're on the quarter term. So they, in the summer, the first years have this first summer off. And then after that, they do other things. But these courses are seminar style. And what we've done is we've tried to recruit people from other disciplines to be part of it as fellows. So we have someone from biology. We had someone from culinary arts. I really want to have an engineer because we're a very strong engineering school at Drexel. And they sit in And in some cases, they even will teach some of the courses which involve, there's one course on Plato's Republic as a founding work about Western political theory. And then there's another course that deals with de Tocqueville and Dewey and William James and so forth about fundamental ideas that were behind our country's founding or inspired it in various ways. We look at the documents, the founding documents, but then we also look at texts by people who were left out. There's the Philadelphia Negro. I think it's, is it W.E.B. Du Bois who wrote that? And there's some James Baldwin that we read. But the point is that we would like to get these texts. You don't have to be an expert in them. And we would really like to get people far flung flung in in other fields to come and teach. And then maybe I would love to have a math seminar, a seminar on calculus, for example, which I never could understand. I always got A's. I didn't know what I was doing. I would love to have somebody teach a seminar on the principles of calculus for students without prerequisites. Maybe they had math in high school, but where we talk about the concept, I haven't yet been able to find somebody who can do that. I think they do that at St. John's University. They have people read Euclid and I don't know, the Newton, or I don't know exactly how they do it. The primary texts in the sciences. Yeah, I just spoke to the president there, Mark Roosevelt, and it is a very impressive school also because they have tutors and these are people who are not expert in what they teach, but they're good teachers, they're educated people who like to teach seminars or know how to teach seminars. And that's precisely what I think we need more of. How do you run these seminars? One of the difficulties I have in teaching is that people are always looking at their phones or at least looking around to figure out where their phones are. And when you see people talking to each other nowadays, they're spending more time on their phone than they are actually looking at the other person in the eye. I was at a concert just the other night at Stanford and the person in front of me had their phone open the whole time and they weren't really doing anything. They were just nervously opening and closing apps and flipping back and forth. And it was just driving me nuts because my eye had to keep gravitating towards this little square light in front of me. And I thought, just sit through the concert. It's only like an hour. Just put it down for an hour. It's an addiction, that phone. But I will say that in the seminar, I try and say no phones, no computers, which is not that easy to do now, especially if you have a paperless campus. I will say when I taught Plato's Republic, part of the grant went, at least as I wanted it to go, so that they got copies of the book in paperback. So they brought the book to class and they had no reason to have computers and they were told not to have their phone. 
whether they abide by that or not is another story. But I think you can at least try by telling them you do not want this to happen. And that's the best you can do. Now, when you have texts that are online, they have to have their computers open. But I've been in classes, at least lecture classes, and even in seminars where the per- the lecturers in f- the front and everybody in the class has their computer open and they're scrolling through Ann Taylor and Talbots and all kinds of other sites while the, I, whether they're listening to the lecture, maybe they can do both at once, but it's extremely demoralizing to think about the fact that so many people are just going on shopping sites while they're being lectured on Michelangelo. Well, sometimes I think that the phone is just like the new cigarette, but I think in some ways cigarettes are better. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did too, you. You can still listen to what someone's saying while you're lighting your cigarette. And I, like you, spent some time in France when I was young and you clearly have an affection for the French. And one of the things that I liked about that part of the book is that Americans are always sort of, let's get to the point, Right. And so a lot of times you're having a conversation with someone, or at least you think you're having a conversation with someone. And then they're like, look, what are you getting at? What's the punchline? And you don't get that as often in France. And it's sort of, I guess it, what does that reveal? What does that say about people when they are impatient in a conversation? Is it a lack of curiosity? Is it a anxiety over a loss of control? Or is it doing a cost benefit analysis? What does that represent? Why do people get impatient like that? Well, I think it's the American can-do spirit where you want to get to the bottom line and get something done. And of course, a conversation isn't about getting something done. I consider myself a very impatient person, actually, very impatient. And I do interrupt a lot with friends. They know that. But I don't want the conversation to end. And I don't necessarily want the point. I just want to be able to get my idea in, get their response to that. I do think that it's temperamental and the French just love that journey. I mean, the very fact that they're protesting this change in their retirement age so vigorously, their lifestyle is about conversation and leisure and pleasure, which includes food. And we are not that way. It's our Puritan background. And I guess I felt a wonderful sense when I was in France of that other culture. I'm still an American. And actually, I wouldn't mind having an apartment in Paris, but I I do feel that I have a different mindset from the French, but I really appreciate the French enormously. It's kind of like exercise, right? So if you forget that sometimes you go to the gym and you lift up a weight and you put it right back where you found it. So the weight has gone nowhere. And you're like, wait, you're not getting anything done here. The stationary bike hasn't moved, right? Like, why are you wasting all your time? You're not getting anything done. But the purpose of the exercise isn't to get the bike from one place to the other, the weight from one place to the other. But then you are still, you're still, what's the word, making it utilitarian when you call it a muscle that you have to exercise. Because even that, it's interesting in France, at least when I was there, they didn't exercise. And they scorned us a little bit for the fact we have an exercise culture. You exercise in the course of living your life. I love that idea. Of course, you can't necessarily get enough exercise in that way. But we are a culture where the idea of, yes, well, I think 
we could sell conversation if we said it was about exercise for the mind, but then we might defeat the purpose. Yeah. Or, well, redefine the purpose. A big part of the purpose is, as you say, forgetting yourself. And you talk about how it took you six years before you had perfected conversation with your husband. <laughs> <laughs> I get rusty. Well, most marriages don't last that long, right? So if it takes six years to get good at it in that very intimate sense, does it keep getting better from there? I mean, sometimes you see couples that are in restaurants and they're just staring into space and they're not talking to one another. And I always thought that was really sad. And then a friend of mine said, oh no, that's great. They're perfectly comfortable with each other, right? They don't need to talk to each other. And I don't know, that could be a personality difference, but I thought that's really terrible. Right? I agree. And I have another friend who loves conversation. And she used to say that she had a horror of the idea that one day she'd be sitting at a dinner table with her husband and they would have nothing to say. But I do think you have to keep on working at it. You have to keep on especially if your spouse is not a natural conversationalist, you have to prod and push and figure out ways to get that conversation going. I don't think it's necessarily that once you reach the six-year mark, you, all of a sudden it, it kicks in, except you do learn some techniques for doing it better. But I don't know, did I say that it wasn't until six years that I really could converse? I do think that it took six years to realize that, to learn about each other and our various ways of doing things, which includes conversation. It could get to the point where, you know, instead of making a point, you say number 12. And that, yeah. Now you've hosted a TV show and I want you to- Still true. Yeah. And you talk about some of the people that you interviewed. So I'm envious of some of the folks that you've gotten onto your TV show. Now, this idea of conversation that's televised, we obviously we have our- comedians and we have our late night and so forth, but the kind of apostrophe like TV show, right? The one where I guess Dick Cavett had this for a while and Charlie Rose to some extent. Is there something to be learned from watching conversations like that about conversation? Do you see yourself as not just helping people to learn about the person you're interviewing, but also demonstrating what it's like to have a conversation when you do your TV show? I guess so. I didn't think of it like that until you asked the question, but I suppose one of the things I, I try and do is to truly have a conversation with the person. So sometimes, because it's now called the civil discourse, the idea is to have guests, at least some of the guests, are people with strong positions. And I want to know what they are I want to encourage them to express them, but I also want to push back or ask questions that would be the questions that an audience would ask of people with those opinions. So I probably give myself away in terms of my opinions, but my opinions are very fluid and in some ways amorphous. They're not like I have certain opinions. I'm always saying I'm a good liberal. And I realize I don't think I'm going to say that anymore because what does that mean? And I'm often saying it as an apology sort of for not stating a prescribed liberal perspective. And I think the fact is, why do I need to say it? It's something in the culture that makes me, I'm going off your question. But in terms of my guests, I just think that I have tried to get them to explain where they're coming from and loosen up and be in the flow of it as a way to exhibit who they are better. 
Sometimes I succeed and sometimes they are so carefully planned or curated that you don't really get much out of them that isn't already known or on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Last question. I remember reading a book, must've been 25 years ago by Martha Nussbaum. And it was about how literature helps you to cultivate empathy. And so she was advising judges. She thought judges ought to read more literature and maybe less economics. But in terms of cultivating empathy, it seems like people want Manichaean stories, right? They want heroes and villains. And the best literature is the kind of literature where the, there, there are no clear villains and there are no clear heroes and that, that people are people, right? And Shakespeare, of course, is a master at this and probably among the best at this. Is it because it's too much work? Why is it that people crave sort of simple narratives with heroes and villains? What is it about this cultivation of empathy that people want to avoid it, right? What is it about that? Well, I guess it's hard. You know, it's much easier to have a hero or a villain and to root for the hero and hate the villain and not to acknowledge that we're all mixed versions of heroes and villains. And maybe we want to identify with the hero and flatten ourselves that way. But great literature, I think, as you said, is really doesn't fall into that. It makes you think about the complexity of human nature. And then I think by doing that, you become more empathetic because you realize you identify with these mixed characters and realize that you yourself are a mix of things and you've done things that are not particularly admirable and that it's complicated. And that's why great literature is important, but we're having a hard time agreeing on what's great literature. That's a whole other discussion. But because part of me feels you could almost read anything at a university and have that shared canon, so to speak, to talk about. But another part of me feels, well, it has to be great and that we have to get back to a notion of greatness, which is that nuanced, profound understanding of human nature in order for us to gain the empathy that you mentioned. And I see Shakespeare as the epitome of that. Yeah. Well, Paula, thanks so much for joining me. Next time we chat, we'll have to chat over a meal and a good bottle of wine. But (laughs) until then, I'm going to check out some of your other work. I'm going to check out your novel. But everybody out there should go out and get Talking Cure. Check it out. Also, Of Human Kindness, which is just a series of analyses of a bunch of different plays. My favorite was the chapter on Measure for Measure, which has always been a play that I've gone back to over and over again. And it's disturbed me every single time. So I enjoy that. Yeah. And so thanks again. I've enjoyed our conversation, Greg. It's been very fun. Okay. Well, we'll do it again. Good. I look forward to it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.